The message this morning, the title that I called a men's scheme, God redeems. Men's scheme, God redeems. This is a, a short psalm, but it's just packed and powerful. Um, I want to start off by just uh, showing you the first item in your bulletin, the, the blank is priority, a priority. There's an immediate urgency experienced here by the psalmist David. Um, David starts the psalm with a cry, almost a yelp, as it were. It's an accurate assessment of his reality. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know when this occurred in his life. But it was a desperate cry. Things are going sideways. Things are out of his control. As we come to celebrate Father's Day, we just have to stop and pause and go, we know that, right? We understand that feeling, don't we? As fathers. Fatherhood is an awesome responsibility. It's one that um, we... If we were to choose it, we would choose hesitantly. But God gives us that grace in giving us children. He gives us the grace we need to rely upon Him to, to get, do our best, our hard work in drawing them to Jesus and pointing the way as we've seen the fathers this morning have done. We are not sufficient, men. We are not sufficient. In our wisdom, in our abilities, in our intuition, in our hard work, even. Those things that we take pride in, we're not sufficient. In our grit. And there's no such thing as luck, is there? I mean, that's just not even remotely real. Chance, luck, that is not even... It is, it is in the mind, isn't it? And it's, it's been used as a pagan idea to try to explain everything, even creation. But there are no shortcuts. And I want to remind us this morning that we're in a war. We're in a war. And it's spiritual. But it is not just ethereal, it is real. It is a real war that we are in combat every moment in our personal and relational decisions, actions, and reactions. So let's look at these first words of this psalm. Psalm 12, verse 1. It starts out, Save, O Lord. Save, O Lord. Every one of us need Jesus. <laughs> Every one of us need Jesus, infinitely and eternally. Every single one of us needs the shed blood of King Jesus. He's the one from which salvation comes. It's not because of what it is due us, 
because we know we are sinners. We are guilty before a holy God who put on Jesus, the perfect warrior who never sinned in thought, word, or deed, he put the guilt of our shame, our sin, upon him. Our life does not end in our regeneration, in our salvation. It be, has only begun. This is a spiritual war. We are in this war, and it is experienced by each and every person, moment by moment. Without salvation, without that regeneration, there is a war against God himself. For those who have claimed salvation in Christ, in his redemption, it is against the devil, the world, and the domain of the, the, domain of the devil, and ourself, our inclination for pleasureful, deadly sin. Sin that we think will ensure our scheming for autonomy, exaltation, glory, even to be king. And so, Men, we need one another. We need the church. As we see in this psalm, in these next few words, David's predicament. He's alone. Let's, let me just read the rest of verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. He is feeling this solitude. He is feeling this absence. First, I want to draw your attention to the, his cry, and that is one of faith in God. One of faith in God. It's not, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a work. Faith, in, faith is trusting in a God who does it all. It is an amplification of God's grace. There's so much debate and confusion about what faith is. Um, I think it reflects our own heart to give us some credit, some, something in our pride, that in, in the fact that we think we're good enough to deserve salvation. Well, the Bible plainly states that our, we are totally depraved. We are at enmity with God, that He extends grace on those whom He chooses and those who are needy. It is entirely God's work, grace that cost God immensely in sending the second person of the Trinity to become a man, born of a virgin, as Jesus, who lived without sin, acceptable perfectly to our holy God, but who was rejected by those to whom His redemption was foretold. And he laid down his life in substitutionary atonement. That is a covering made to God the Father to redeem all who receive his grace, that gift. So our faith is like the human perspective of what God has done. God does it all. Grace is a gift, completely and entirely done by God. Faith is the human, God-given response of that same grace in response. to the work that none of us could do. None of us could accomplish what Jesus did. 
want to show you uh, just this definition from Scripture of Abraham's faith. Romans 4 says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see that? Faith is the response. There is God-given response to His grace. It's His grace. It's all the work that He did. The next thing I want to just discuss here is the fight. The fight for, of the enemy. You see, we are all called to battle. We are all called to fight. And I kind of imagine in this first verse that this perhaps is the scenario that David finds himself. So this is my imagination going here. David is in a battle. That's my imagination, okay? And he looks around, and he's fighting, but he's alone. He's fighting the enemy, but he doesn't see anyone else, any other faithful person left. And he cries to God, God, save me! You see, this is important for me to point out because my inclination, my heart, is to, when I read the verses further down, to let go and let God. And that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to a battle, to be engaged but he promises as we are engaged, he promises that we fight with his power. His power. In Colossians 2, Paul says um, that we, it, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, we saw that this morning depicted on the stage, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, this is, this is he, he has conquered all of the evil rule of this world. 2 Corinthians 12 continues to say, remind us that His grace is sufficient for us in our time of weakness. Paul says in Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God calls us to this battle, but he promises to be with us in that battle. 
as we have been discovering God's sovereignty and His rule over all, His control of every circumstance, His even His control over whether we have favor with others, as we've learned in Daniel. We need to take a look here at God's plan. What is God's plan? This has been so helpful to me as Kathleen has been translating Genesis, and uh, I've I found a series sermon series by Abner Chow on um, Genesis given earlier this year, and he was ta- he was emphasizing God's plan from the beginning. He gives us in Genesis he establishes the fact that he is the creator, he is the owner of all he has created. And we are accountable to him. And what happened? Adam and Eve disobeyed. They sinned against God. They broke that relationship. But what is God's commitment in Genesis 3.15? He promises that he will, save, he will save through a child born of a woman who will stomp the serpent's head. He promises a redemption that is coming. And he set aside a people through Genesis. We read about that people, the people of Israel that he set apart, a nation to be the proclaimers of God and to bring forth his knowledge through his word and through whom the Savior would come. This is God's redemption redemptive story that is throughout all of Scripture. This is God's plan. And we need to understand God's plan from eternity. It isn't multiple plans. It's the plan of God to bring redemption. Colossians 1 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God's work in you is to make you holy. He has begun that work by fulfilling everything that you couldn't in a perfect life and paying the price that God demanded for sin of which we are all guilty. And that is the death that Jesus bore. The substitutionary death. He was innocent. And yet he laid down his life as a payment for us. He rose again triumphant and has ascended to heaven where he prays for us. He continues engaging in warfare for us. And this is his plan. This is his plan to raise... and redeem, redeem and raise a holy people. 
1 John 3, verse 2 and verse 8, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So right away, we, I already noted the peculiar absence, a peculiar absence. David goes, the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Really current, in fact, does it not? A peculiar absence. David makes this cry of faith in a position of singularity. He is alone or feels alone. This isn't new, nor is it unfamiliar to us. But let me say again to us men here, to be manly is not to be singular. That's a lie. Okay, To think that you are only being a man when you don't, can't link arms with others. No. Manliness is not to be singular. God calls us to be willing to stand for Him even though it may seem like we are alone. Receive His grace gift of Jesus. If you are standing for Him, you are standing with Him. This is faith living out moment by moment in every decision we make. Committing ourselves to God's sovereignty, to God's control. Ephesians 6, you know the passage of putting on the armor, right? It's, it's undisputable. We are in war and we are to put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a real battle. It's a battle for our souls. For we may even claim to be a Christian. We may even attend faithfully Good Shepherd Church. And yet, we have a secret sin, a secret love for sin. And if we continue in that sin, 1 John 3 says, we are a liar. We are not bought by Jesus' blood. Because we love that sin and we continue in it. And Jesus died to set us free from that sin. That is the, the tell that we have been born again, is that we 
begin to hate our sin. We turn from it. We repent. It's our only hope that we turn in repentance to Christ. Where is the man that keeps his covenants? That's what David is asking here. Where is the man who keeps his covenants? If you are a Christian, you have received the covenant of God. His promise to you. And you are called to be a faithful man. A faithful person. And David looks around and he doesn't see anyone. He doesn't see any of those who have received God's love. He doesn't see any standing with him. And again, we don't know what circumstance this is. But you know what? That is of the Holy Spirit because that means we can apply this to our, any circumstance we are in. We, we can't say this is just a cultural thing, a cultural context, can we? This is written and given by the Holy Spirit through David for us, for us today. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That is what a man who has received the covenant of God in salvation will do. He will also be a man that is described in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Sin is hated. Sin is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord? Who swear to his own hurt and does not change? That's a man of covenant. He goes, I made a promise and I will do whatever it takes to fulfill my promise. In the law, in Leviticus, as we went through that, we learned that there are occasions where we are unable to fulfill our promise, our word. And what are we, instruction is, to give, is given to us what we are to do. We are to go and beg to be released of our word. Our word is important. Our word is all we have <laughs> to show that we are men of integrity, that we are men of God, in fact. Because if we are, say we are men of God and we don't keep our word, we make God a liar to, in appearance to others. Now, does this, is this easy? No, it says he swears to his own hurt. 
Keeping your word will cost you. Are you prepared for that? Or are you going to just never make a commitment in your life? Are you prepared to live that way? I don't think so. But this is so important to God. Because God is holy. God is a keeper of His Word. And He commands and demands that we, as His people, be keepers of our Word. So who is there? We talked about who isn't there. Keepers of their word. Who is there? Evil speech. And isn't it interesting that this text zeroes in on talk. What is said. Why does, it, why does God do that? Well, Jesus said... Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart, you're going to to say. So if it's real in here, it's going to be real in your speech. He also said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. What did we have listed here? Lies, empty talk. Lies, lying, empty talk. It's worthless. It's just empty words. You don't mean it. He moves on to flattery, smooth talk. It's it's manipulation. It's to get what you want to try to get out of someone else. To butter them up, we, we use that idiom. Butter them up to get what we want. To deceive someone or cheat them. And then here we have double hearts. To mean one thing, to advance the opposite. It's double-minded in James. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then I labeled the last one arrogant autonomy because there's two phrases. With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us and who is master over us? Who will be Lord of what we say? We're our own Lord. We're our own master. If I say it, it is. Boy, that, we hear that all the time, don't we? Even Disney. Just believe. Just say it. What foolishness, right? And our kids should know that's foolishness. You can't just say it and it happen. Life doesn't work that way. It takes hard work. It takes effort. It takes discipline if you want to achieve something. But they're promoting a faith system, aren't they? They're promoting this worldview that we're reading about right here. 
this worldview that is demonic, this worldview that is against God. And as David looks around him, that's all he sees. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. We will be our own God. We will dictate. We will create what we want by our words. We will create our end. The end justifies the means. All those humanistic ideals, ideas and philosophies are pouring out here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is warning Timothy. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Boy, we've heard a lot about deconstruction, haven't we, in the last several years. People leaving the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Why is it they are leaving the faith? They're giving, devoting themselves even to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from the foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. (laughs) That was the context. People were forbidding others to get married, and they were saying, be selective in what you eat to be holy, in order to be sanctified, in order to be received, receive salvation. And Paul is very, very firm, very, very clear. This is doctrine of demons. Doctrine of demons and deceitful spirits. So David, as we would do, I hope, cries out in prayer. As Daniel did, (laughs) he cried out in prayer. An urgent prayer. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips than the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. And why does David pray this kind of prayer? Because he knows God is holy. This is detestable in the sight of God. And God will judge it. God's judgment is certain. And we must feel the weight of that. Because we were that way, were we not? Who who taught us how to lie? David said, in fact, that he came forth from the womb, being born, speaking lies. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? No one had to teach us how to lie. No, we cared more about ourselves, our self-preservation. We wanted to get even others in trouble 
rather than take responsibility. And so we would point the finger at a very, very early age, right? We would lie. So David is calling upon what is just and right and what is true of God. God will judge this. We cannot, as Christians, we cannot use this methodology of the world of demons to scheme the way the world does to change the wickedness around us. You know, fight fire with fire, fight lies with lies, is that what we're going to do? No, we cannot. I call this scheming. These are the schemes of men. And we as a, the church, as, as those who are protected by God, by those who are owned by God, cannot choose this methodology to change the wickedness around us. Our greatest weapon is to cry out to God who is sovereign, who is in control, who does bring judgment. He is faithful. We need to cry this humble cry for mercy and compassion from God. It's only God can change the hearts. But our inclination is to take these things upon ourselves. And, and just like, as mentioned here, who is master over us, that is our sinful inclination as well. We want to take the burdens of this world, of this age, upon ourselves. And we think we can manipulate it and change it and make it better. Don't we? In fact, we even want that. I came back from Bangladesh with just my heart was burdened this last spring of the oppression that we face as David is facing here in this psalm. And the inclination of our hearts of, oh, if we could just have heaven on earth, wouldn't we, that would be great. If we could just make our little sanctuary, our little heaven. If that's what God wanted for us, that's what He would have done. That is not within our ability to accomplish. We can't take that burden on. We cannot manipulate Things in the way the world tries to manipulate things. Only God can change hearts. And that's only the only thing that will bring change in our society and in our culture. It's not our manipulation. It is God's redemption. So the burden we should carry is how can we tell them of God's mercy of God's redemption and pray that God will redeem them as he redeemed us as he redeemed us it's so easy to sit here and say oh that world out there right it's so evil and we forget I was that evil and God saved me by His great mercy, by His great love, He redeemed me. He changed me. Proverbs 2.11 says, The king's heart is as a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. 
It's nothing to God to change someone's mind for them. (laughs) We can't do that. But it's nothing to God. So we need to acknowledge this battle we are engaged in, but also depend on the Lord to fight for us. And when I say for us, it's not that we take a seat now and go, okay, God, I'm watching you take over, take the fight. No, God will not. We must be engaged, and God says he will be with us, and he will fight for us. He will accomplish what we cannot. So here's the apex of this psalm. Verse 5. A promised response. And this is my ambition. If you don't understand, if I'm just up here mumbling and you don't get it, I want you to get this. Okay, because this is the most important thing. This is what the Hebrew poetry has been pointing to. Verse 5. It's the apex. And it's what I want to communicate more than anything else this morning. Is this about God to you? I've told you that God is bigger than any sin. And He is. And He's greater. But I also want to communicate as... The psalmist does in this psalm what he does. How big is he? That's what I hope to answer here in this verse. Let's look at it. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What is this verse saying? It's saying that God redeems. He saves. The needy are there. The poor are plundered. And God says, I'm coming. I will... I will arise. I'm going to battle. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God is fighting for you. And then this amazing verse, how good is God's word of rescue, of redemption? Silver refined seven times. What does that mean? Well, obviously, it means pure. It's pure. It's of an estimable value. It's, his word is inerrant. It's without error. Silver, I like to think of as reflective. It, it, this is, this is a, a reflecting the one who gives the word. It's, ref, it's reflective of all that who God is. His truthfulness, His faithfulness. And it won't pass away. It's pure. All the impurities have been removed. Silver is one of the elements 
It is elemental and won't deteriorate. Jeremiah 1 says, I, God says, I am watching over my word to perform it. Promises kept. Promises kept. God has kept his promises. From the very beginning, we, we have his promises that he has made in all of Scripture, and we have the evidence how he has fulfilled his word over and over again, his plan of redemption, and how he has accomplished that, culminating in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now his spirit in those who put their faith and trust in him. They, we are empowered by the Spirit of God to do, accomplish and do the sanctification work that He has begun in us. God is fighting for you, and He is, he is that big. He is that big over evil. He's fighting for you, and you know what He's fighting to accomplish? He's fighting to turn evil into good. He is redeeming. He is redeeming. That's what our God is doing. That's how big He is. That's how great He is. And He preserves. Look at what it says. 5b, I will place Him in the safety for which He longs. And then verse 7, O Lord, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Do you get that? You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and He has you forever. There is nothing you can do, nothing anyone can do to remove you from His hand. He bought you his pur the purchase of His blood was the price. And it was sufficient. It was adequate. It was received and accepted by God to hold you in His hand. To not keep you as He found you, but to redeem you, to change you, to mold you into His image to accomplish this redemption, this continued work of sanctification until we see Him and we will be like Him. And then the psalm ends in this almost confounding way. I call it the precluded effort. And preclude means a fail. Let's look at verse 8. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. So God didn't save us so that we could make or create our own little sanctuary, our own little heaven on earth, so that we could all be happy and it would be easy to obey Him. 
And no one would mock us. No one would give us any trouble. No. The psalmist brings this paradox. Uh, the present, that wickedness goes on. Wickedness goes on. But God is bigger than that wickedness. He is working to turn evil for good. He is working to make you more like His Son, Jesus. He is working to redeem those who are lost, who have not yet called upon His name for salvation. But mark my words, and mark the words of the Scripture, the worldview of the wicked that continues is like a fuse that's burning down till God's judgment falls. Because God's judgment is certain. The vile are those who are God to themselves. They push and inflict their immorality. But as Genesis 50.20 says, as Joseph was trying to comfort his brothers as they were in fear of his retaliation and his retribution, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God will write all things one day. But it is not our position, it is not our responsibility to do that. That is God's position, His responsibility. We are to be at war. We are to be at war. We are to be active. We are to be calling upon His name. We are to be about wielding our offensive sword of the Word of God that is pure, that is faithful, that is like silver tried, purified seven times in a furnace of earth. This is what God calls us to. So our response this morning, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will keep His Word. Why doesn't He just do away with evil? Why is wickedness still prevailing? Because it, we, we, this life is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's about His glory. It's about His plan of redemption. God wants you to know that He is fighting for you to turn evil for good. So be in the Word so you know what He has prescribed. So you know the difference between good and evil. The lies are all around us. How do you know what's a lie and what isn't? His Word. What He has said. What He has spoken. Know the Bible and trust and obey Him.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again I ask that you would use my feeble effort, my perhaps confusing words even, to bring clarity to your glory, to who you are, to your majesty, to your command to us to be engaged, to be fighting, to against the devil, against the world, against the, the inclinations, the sinful inclinations of our own hearts, and that we would turn in repentance to you, that we, we would walk in your ways, that we would hate our sin, that we would embrace and love righteousness and holiness. We pray this, for you have accomplished it all. You have fought the fight and completed it. You have made the promises to us and you are doing it. It is your, by your power that we exist and that we are witnesses in this wickedness of your faithfulness, of your truth, of your righteousness, of your purity, of your holiness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your precious name, amen.